Good morning. We had to pause for a moment to allow for the sound operator to return to his booth. But that's okay. I I find it a good thing to pause after receiving communion, to reflect, to remember. You know, as often as I do it, and as for as long as I have done it, and for as much as I study the reason for it, I find myself incapable of comprehending the magnitude of what it is we remember. That Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and the Lord of all glory came down and gave himself for us. The Prince of Heaven didn't leave heaven and empty himself of all his glory to give us a better life. He didn't come down and allow himself to be lifted up on a cross just to make things good for us. He came down and offered his life a sacrifice so that we might live so that we might be able to enter into covenant with God once again. That's the magnitude of it. His sacrifice was a true sacrifice. He paid the penalty that he did not owe. It was a debt that we owed and a debt we could not pay. And he came down and offered himself so that we might have eternal life. We get so wrapped up in this day-to-day life that we live this this momentary existence, this temporal realm, and, and we get so busied by it and so distracted by it, and we seem to forget that there is another life, another phase. We are going to enter into eternity, and we will enter into eternity either alive forever or dead forever. I know I've said it before, but I'll say it again, and I'll probably say it again after this, that every time I stand up here, I do so trembling, humbled by this, even more so today for the word that God has given me. Turn with me, if you will, to Luke chapter 16. We will begin at verse 19. Familiar story, but if you will, try to disassociate yourself with that familiarity. Pray that the Lord would give you new eyes to see it, ears to hear it. Before we begin, let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege to be here. As it has been stated, it is a beautiful day. But Lord, when we are in fellowship with you, every day is beautiful. For you are our light. I thank you for the sacrifice your son made, that we are able to remember that through the Lord's table and 
remind ourselves of the price that has been paid. I thank you for your word, Lord, that you give us, that lamp unto our feet and that light unto our path and that guide that directs us, Lord. I thank you for your indwelling spirit, your abiding presence, O God. And I pray, Lord, that today you would anoint this word. Just get this man out of the way and allow your spirit to speak and allow your anointing to go forth, which destroys the yokes that binds us. Open our ears that we might hear your word, God, and our faith might be strengthened. Just make our hearts malleable, Lord, that we would receive your word and respond to it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Luke chapter 16, verse 19. Now there was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. And a certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores and longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets... Neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Familiar words, strong, powerful words. And as I was studying it, words I began to see in a slightly different light. You know, everyone here plays a purpose. Everyone here has a role. If we open ourselves up to God, he will use every single individual in this place. From the teachers, the preachers, the, the people who clean the facility to, to the people who make the bulletin. Sometimes we may think, oh, my role is insignificant, but it's not insignificant. In fact, last week's bulletin came to my mind when I was preparing this sermon. Even though this message has been stirring in my heart for the last couple of weeks, it, last week's Bulletin jumped out at to me. You remember it was talking about the end of the program and, and there was a graphic on it that looked like a red stamp. And it said, missed opportunity. And as I was studying this out, I began to realize that this is precisely what it's talking about. 
missed opportunity. You know, in Psalm 139, verse 16, it says, Thine eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in thy book they were all written, the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. All our days are written before we were even born, and I began to wonder at that, how many of them will we find stamped with missed opportunity? There are various missed opportunities now. There, there are missed opportunities for the sinner to receive salvation, to enter into covenant with God through Christ Jesus, right? We're familiar with those. Those are the ones we bring up the most. But what about the missed opportunity for the Christian to witness to one who is lost, to witness to the undone, to witness, for those, witness to those who are destined for an eternity of torment? There's another missed opportunity for the sinner to take hold of eternal life, to spend eternity in joy unspeakable and full of glory. We rehearse these words that we get from Scripture itself, but do we believe them? Missed opportunity again for the Christian, and here's a quote from Jude. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others snatching them out of the fire, and on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. No matter how greatly we hate sin, no matter how much disdain we have towards them that seem to revel in sin, it ought to be our goal to reach into that and pull them from the fire. That's why we're here. That's why Christ died not for something so trivial as I'm going to have a good day today because it's got a blue sky and white clouds and temperate weather and and I can walk in joy. No, he died to pull us out of hell. And I know that's, that's not a fashionable term anymore. See, our text today represents a warning intended to keep both sinner and saint from having missed opportunities. That's the warning. Don't have a missed opportunity. The rich man recognized it really well, didn't he? Oh, send someone to warn my brothers. I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them. In fact, we should be reminded when we do participate in the Lord's Supper of that warning, right? We're celebrating Christ died, buried, resurrected, ascended into glory, going to come and receive us again. We're celebrating the fact that we're, we're on our way to heaven, but we ought to be reminded that the opposite is those that are on their way to hell. So that he may warn them. The first warning comes in a form of reminder. Hell is a real destination oh I know that's unfashionable hell the word hell itself the the modern translations we use today it uses different words even from hell you know whether we say Elohim or El Elyon or Jehovah Sabaoth or Ancient of Days who are we talking about God and he's still God whether we call him Jehovah or Yahweh or Adonai. 
And likewise, whether we say Gehenna, that once bloody valley of Hinnom where they practiced idolatrous child sacrifice and in Jesus' day was a burning heap of trash and refuse. Or whether we say Hades or Tartarus, the Greek netherworld, or even if we say Sheol, the realm of the dead, hell is still hell. We read in in this translation in Luke chapter 16, Hades, hell. I'm being tormented in this flame. And it's a real destination. I don't take this to be a parable. Jesus doesn't call it a parable. Luke didn't call it a parable. And it includes the names of actual people, Abraham and Lazarus. And before you protest and say, what about the rich man? He didn't have a name. Well, you know why? Because the smoke of his torment will go up forever and ever. But his name is also forever blotted out of the Lamb's book of life. Forgotten. This is a serious topic today and I tremble with it and I don't relish it. But we need to address it. We need to remind ourselves of it again. This is the reason Christ died. This is the reason He leaves us here. We remain to go out and preach the gospel. This is part of the gospel. This is integrally tied up in the gospel and it's also tied up in the holiness of God. J.C. Ryle once stated, Disbelieve hell, and you unscrew, unsettle, and unpin everything in Scripture. You may as well throw your Bible away at once. That's how integral hell is. What sense does it make if there's no hell? If there's no destination, final destination of eternal judgment, what sense does it make for Christ to come and die? What does Jesus say about hell? He says hell is a place of torment. That's what we just read. A place from which there is no return. We just read that as well. He said it's a place of unquenchable fire. It is where the worm does not die. It is a furnace of fire where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. How long has it been since we heard these things? He calls hell a place of outer darkness. The eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. The final destination for those who join the rebellion against God by refusing to repent or surrender to Jesus or receive the gift of salvation. Jesus knew, believed, and warned about the absolute reality of hell. Do we? Do we? I beg you, Father... Send him to my father's house so that he may warn them lest they come into this place of torment. The rich man wanted someone to warn his brothers. But I ask, who's actually being warned by the telling of this event? We love context, right? Text without context is a con. We love context. Well, the context is Jesus is preaching to the Pharisees. If you just go look earlier on in chapter 16, he's preaching to the Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? The Pharisees were the rich, the religious leaders of that day. 
They were the ones that were the oracles of God were given to. They were given the word of God and they were given the commission to, to go out and preach it, to shine that light, to be the light to the world. What is our commission? What is the church's role today? We are given the word of God and we are told to go out and preach the gospel. We are told to go out and save the lost. I begin to wonder, is he preaching to us? You know, it's easy for us to look at the the story here, the retelling of these events, and, and say, well, the rich man, sinner, Lazarus, Christian. But it doesn't say that. In fact, there's a lot of similarities right now, especially here in America. The church looks a lot like the rich man and the world looks a lot like Lazarus. That's what I want us to see today, even though it will be uncomfortable, even though it's just it's it's against our nature, even though it doesn't taste very good. I want us to recognize that fact. Think about it. The rich man, he was a Hebrew. He knew of Abraham. He was aware of the law of God. He was aware that there was a coming reckoning. These things the rich man forsook in his life. But he was wealthy. He was richly arrayed. He was living sumptuously. He was wanting for nothing. And he had no worries, no cares. How wealthy are we? How at ease are we? These are questions we need to ask. Am I making condemnation or indictment against anyone? No. That's for the Lord to do. But I'm just asking the question. How wealthy are we? We come into our fine, beautiful, lovely churches, which they ought to be because we're trying to worship God. And we come and sit on our comfortable pews and we're in regulated climates and and we just love it right while the world is beggars they have no hope and i wrote in my notes here surely you are incorrect here preacher come on now somebody out there's thinking that there can be no comparison between the church and the rich man But Jesus wrote a letter to the church of Laodicea. And he offered them no commendation. He offered them no praise. He wrote six other letters and within them there was some commendation and praise. But Laodicea received none. Why? Because in Revelation chapter 3 verse 17 he said, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. If we do away with the doctrine of hell, we might as well throw it all away, right? 
I know someone else is thinking, I do want to see the pews filled. I do want invite people to church. I do tell people about Jesus. I do tell people the gospel, the good news. And I'm sure you do, and I know some of you do. But when was the last time you told someone the bad news? I know many people that I associate with and that I care about. They have no issue whatsoever because life is fine for them. So the gospel, the good news, they're like, why do I need good news? It's already good. Life is good. Well, they need the bad news. That wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. Hell is coming. To not warn men that hell is coming for them is to do the same thing the serpent did in the garden when he deceived Eve by saying, you surely shall not die. Do you understand? Oh, I know our sensibilities. We want to love people. We want to love on them. We want to grab them and and show them the love of Christ. Sure, fine. But that same Jesus that died The cost, the price he paid, there's a reckoning for rejecting it. It is his love that deems judgment. It is his holiness, his righteousness that deems judgment. Can we understand that? We discipline our children, why? Because we love them. It's a natural response. But if you entirely and absolutely reject Christ, then what place is there for you? Second Corinthians 5 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore... Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. See, that's what we're missing today. We have forgotten the fear of the Lord. And the Greek there is phobos, meaning fear, dread, awe, terror of the Lord. Sometimes I like the older versions because they say that. Knowing the terror of the Lord. We persuade men. We ought to be terrified for them. We ought to go to them as the rich man here proclaims. Oh, please send someone that my brothers not come here. And I'm not trying to be intentionally melodramatic. But I am trying to place emphasis on this. It's a deadly serious thing. Fear of what? Of their need for salvation? This is what we warn them. We need, you need salvation. You have a date with destruction. You're on a journey to hell via the wrath of God. God is love. But he's also a God of wrath. In John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, the Holy Spirit was making the main character, the man, 
aware of his sinful state and was filling his heart and mind with conviction, fear, and dread. The man was walking around. He was pacing around to and fro. What am I going to do? I've got this sin on me. He, he became cognizant of some kind of defect, and fear came with it. But he needed something else. He could go no further. He was there in that fear. That's torment. He needed something else. And what was that something else? We read that the character of the evangelist came warning the man. And he said, flee the wrath to come. And then further, he pointed him the way to go. Go to Christ. Go to that light. Go to that gate over there, that door. That's what we ought to be doing. We ought to be going to them and saying, you have to flee the wrath to come. In Luke chapter 9, we read, and he was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life shall lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Those are... Familiar text. Those are ones we're ready to apply. We just sang those words. But what does it mean to deny ourselves? Well, sometimes we're going to have to deny that inclination that we don't want to be uncomfortable, that we don't want to make our friends, families, co-workers, neighbors, strangers uncomfortable, that we don't want to be an offense. Guess what? Jesus was crucified because he was offensive. How does one gain the whole world and lose his life? Well, again, in that same chapter, we read, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Have we, like the church, have we, the church, like the rich man, grown so wealthy, so at ease, so occupied with our luxury, so self-serving, so apathetic that we have secretly become ashamed of Jesus? I mean, it's hard for us to talk about the blood, right? It's hard for us to talk about the cross in the, con- the actual context. It's hard for us to talk about hell. The concept of hell, a place of eternal torment, is so offensive to our carnal sensibilities. I don't want to offend anyone. I don't want to lose my social standing. I don't want to damage my reputation. I just want to show the love of Jesus. This is showing the love of Jesus. The highest form of love that we can show is to warn men they are destined for eternal torment if they die in their sins. We can't candy coat it. We can't wrap it up in a pretty bow. Jesus Christ hung on a cross, naked. We don't even like to say that. Naked, beaten, bruised, battered, bleeding, dying the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, because there was a hell. Because there is a hell. Jonathan Edwards is said to have prayed, where will all our worldly enjoyments be when we are laid in the silent grave? 
Let me be resolved to live as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. Resolved to live as I shall wish I had done 10,000 ages hence. Lord, stamp eternity on my eyeballs. That's what he prayed. Let me realize that there's an eternity a breath away. Let me realize that there's an eternity a heartbeat away. Let me realize that there's a, a... destination from whence I can never return. In 2 Corinthians 4, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentarily light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comprehension. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. This is real. The doctrine of eternal punishment, the doctrine of hell, the doctrine of that destination separate from God is throughout the Bible. I wish I had time to go through and and just show them. I had to resist the urge to make my notes where I listed and, and recounted the verses. It's throughout Scripture. And it's scary. It's terrifying. I mean, in the places in Revelation where the culmination of it all and heaven and earth flee and and everyone stands before God and then the new heaven and the new earth is made. I can't escape the verses, though, that says, and they looked and the smoke of their torment went up forever and ever. Their name is forgotten, but the smoke there. How horrific. If we say that we... Love everybody. If we say we love the sinner, then ought we be crying out, flee the wrath to come. Yes, we do it in love. Yes, we do it guided by the Holy Spirit. Yes, we pray, but we have to pray. God, Give me the opportunity. Lord, give me the heart to do it. Let me be bold to do it. Let me not shrink from the uncomfortableness to do it. I want to finish. I want to close with a a lengthy quote from a book that I've read. And I pray you listen to the words and, and, and just bear with it and hear the words because I've never heard it put more succinctly than this right here. I've wrestled with the quotes a little bit. I've I've manipulated them a little bit, but it's still the truth of what was written. It's a book written by Jerry Miles Humphrey in 1912. So the language might be a little different. But the title of the book is The Lost Soul's First Day in Eternity. It's scriptural, and it's also his imagination. But just listen to it. Hear the words. Oh, what a strange world. There is no sun, no moon, no water, no air, no land, no business, no friends, but desolation, night, and emptiness everywhere. While these awful words resound throughout that void of space, this is 
eternity. Let us notice a few things that take place with the sinner at this point. First, he is convinced of the fact that he has really died and is not dreaming. His eyes are now open to behold the mystery of things unseen. He now realizes that even while dwelling upon earth, he was surrounded with more spirits than men, more inhabitants of the thin air than of the solid ground. He also realizes that while dwelling upon earth, he was on the borderland of heaven and hell. He realizes too that Satan and his host were not chained in hell, as he had previously supposed, but were loose upon the earth, binding sinners with a chain of habit, uncleanness, drunkenness, covetousness, unbelief, and leading them down to eternal night. He also awakens to the fact that it was the devil by his side that prompted every lie, every sneer, every dishonest deed, every unkind thought, every unholy desire and unkind word that had ever escaped his lips. He also realized what an awful thing it was to take sides against Jesus and righteousness by living in sin upon earth. His eyes are now open to behold the host of darkness as they wage war against Christ and his church. He now realizes that every prayer, every sermon and gospel song that he ever heard was a lifeline thrown out from heaven to rescue him from the awful whirlpool of sin and vice. He also realizes the fact that the Bible was a great beacon light sent from eternity to time to disperse the gloom of sin's night and lead fallen men from death to life and from woe to bliss. He has awakened to the fact that all of his supposed secret sins which he committed while on earth in dark and secluded places, were not done in secret, but in full view of God. He now sees that every evil thought and wicked imagination was heard like peals of thunder. He also realizes how vain it was to wholly pursue any earthly object, culture, fame, wealth, pleasure, dress, beauty, grandeur, on and on. He had previously taken sin to be a tame, non-offensive thing. But now, he sees it in all its deceivableness and wretchedness. He now beholds it as a great tidal wave breaking forth from the Garden of Eden, overflowing and drenching all of the bounds of time and sweeping, teeming billions of souls over the falls of eternal death. It's pretty heavy, isn't it? But this is the way men used to think about it. Because you have one chance. One opportunity. His next realization is the fact that he is really lost. Oh, what an awful word. Lost souls can you get a faint idea of the measureless depth of meaning in the two small words what oceans of tears what overwhelming burst of wailing and gnashing of teeth what eternities of despair irredeemably lost no chance for a light to shine out on their devil begirt furnace heated paul shrouded downward outward hellward pathway lost to happiness and holiness lost to god and the redeemed lost to heaven and hope, lost and no hope of ever being found. 
Not one dim, distant hope of ever being anything but more hopelessly, ruinously, despairingly lost during all the eternities to come. From woe to more woe, misery to more misery, ever, always lost. Lost because they would be lost. Lost while their bosom friend was found. Lost while Jesus was seeking them and found them lost. But they would not be found. They might have been found but would not. They gained the world and lost their souls. They gained the shadow and lost the substance. Gained the briars and lost the flowers. Gained famine and lost plenty. Gained foes and lost a friend. And here it is. They gained eternal damnation and lost eternal life. This is what we're talking about. Lost amid outward, outer darkness, lost in the smoke of torment, lost in the lake of fire and brimstone, lost amid the howlings of the myriads of tormenting devils, the shrieks of the damned and horrible tempest, the thousand thunders, lost, lost, lost. The bells of eternity are tolling the requiem. Time warns you. The Bible warns you. Judgment and providence of God warn you. The Spirit warns you. Oh, preacher. What a dark and dreadful topic on such a beautiful day. This topic is what the days are for. There are some men out there so hardened that it's only this that the Spirit can use to soften their heart. Yes, I believe in the euangelion, the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and there's no brighter light in this dark and dying world than that the Son of God came down from heaven and died upon a cross that we might live. But oh, we need to tell people the bad news. The reason why he did it. That if you reject, if you deny, if you choose not to receive, then you will forever spend an eternity in darkness, in despair. Never again seeing light, never again experiencing joy or hope or love or gratitude or anything like that. That's why we that's why Jesus reminded us do this in remembrance of me. Remember I died. Remember why I died. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, once again for your word. God, I pray that it go forth with your anointing and perform all your will. I thank you, Lord, that you are mindful and faithful and that you love us so much that you're willing to put it out even when it makes us uncomfortable. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.